Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Sarah, and this is the Squiggly Careers podcast. Each week, we take a topic to do with work, and we share some ideas and some actions that we really hope will help you, and it does always help us, to navigate all of our squiggly careers with that bit more confidence, clarity, and control. And this week is one of our Ask the Expert episodes, where we're going to be talking about learning with David Erickson. David wrote an article in 2015, and me realising that made me feel very old, called Doing by Learning. And this is an article that I come back to all the time. I regularly refer back to and reread. I recommend to someone, I think, at least once a week. And one of the things that always really struck me about this article, about how we learn, how we go about learning, is that David is the founder of an organisation called Hyper Island. And their quest, uh, their sort of mission, he describes as how to teach people about things we yet didn't know anything about. And I think that remains as relevant and as useful today as it was back in 1995 when they created Hyper Island. And this idea of learning by doing, he explains as something called learning through reflection on doing. And it's not necessarily an easy thing to get your head around, but I think it's worth us all spending some time understanding and thinking about and reflecting on what does that mean for me and my day to day if we all want to be work in progress if we want to all be learner tools that what are we actively doing to make that happen and I really I'm so glad that after so many years of almost feeling connected to David and his work through reading it and rereading it that we had the chance to have this conversation. He's been on my list of experts I wanted to talk to for a very long time and our conversation didn't disappoint me. So I think it's a really great mix of uh, asking some big questions of ourselves, but also some practical ideas that we can all have a go at straight away. So I hope you enjoy listening. I'll be back at the end to let you know how you can learn more. So David, thank you so much for joining us on the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm really excited about our conversation today. Thank you for having me. And so we're going to dive straight in to this idea of learning at work today and how we learn and whether we're doing a good job of it. So let's talk about where we're not doing a good job, because often that's interesting as a, as a place to start. What do you see as some of the challenges in terms of perhaps traditionally how we've approached learning at work, what we think it looks like and some of the approaches that we take based on the education that maybe we've all had? Well, so I think the two stories. 
I think there's a very individual story about you as an individual and how you think about yourself and how you react to learning for yourself. And we can talk a lot about that. But the other thing I think is very much down to the organization and the culture of it. Um, I usually think of it as a fishbowl, you know, an aquarium or a fish tank. And you got fish in it, but the water can be of very different quality. Sometimes it can be a very toxic environment that is not really fruitful and, and helpful for people to learn. And, and sometimes that environment can be incredibly good to create very powerful learning experience. So I guess that's culture. But if I take it back to the sort of inner environment or the individual, I appreciate the work of Carol Dweck a lot. If you've heard about, yeah, of course you have. <laughs> but the whole idea of, of growth mindset, because I think that a lot of us growing up, and I'm of a slightly older generation than you, but, you know, some of us seem to just think that, you know, we need to be perfect. And, you know, if, if we do something or if we don't know something, it reflects, reflects badly on ourselves. So we try to uphold this persona that knows stuff. And the minute that we think or pretend that we know everything, we become terrible learners. <laughs> you know, that's just the nature of it. But if we have a mindset that is, I don't know everything, I'm not perfect. Uh, and when I come across something that I don't know anything about, that, that that's fine. And I can try to get my head around it and ask lots of questions. So that's the inner environment. It's a lot more than that. I'm sort of doing the superficial version of it now. But that's the inner version. That, again, coming back to culture, I think bad organizations, they hate errors. They hate mistakes. They love to point fingers and say, it wasn't me, it was that person over there or that team over there. And, and it's a culture of fear with very little psychological safety. And, you know, not a lot of people are going to be open and disclose and be honest. And it's going to be high level of pretense in that type of organization. And that organization won't learn. While an organization that have a lot of psychological safety that encourages people to expand as people. You know, it, it's so much in hierarchical organization is about constraining people into a role. No, 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 no. You're not hired to think about that and do that and talk to those. You know, you're supposed to just do this little thing over here. And they sort of put people in very, very tight and small boxes while good organizations, they really encourage to expand and to reach out and to join things up and to collaborate. And when you see something that's not working or something that can be done in a different way, you, you know, you're encouraged to orchestrate that. Yeah, this is very quick survey, but you know, we can have that <laughs> as a starting point, perhaps. Yeah, and I think I recognise so much of that in myself when I think about particularly my early career. You know, when I, when I think about almost what I've had to unlearn and relearn, because I think I was somebody who went to school and thought, I don't want to make any mistakes. I'm not going to put my hand up if I don't, if I'm not 100% confident that I know the answer because I'll look stupid and, and felt quite uncomfortable with that. And then went into very big organisations where no one talked about making mistakes, where you can't help but be a box on an organisational chart and you respond to that environment. And it definitely took me quite a few years of almost like uncomfortable unlearning to sort of let mm. go of this idea of well I should know all of the answers and if I don't 
asking a question or saying I don't know, you know, is unacceptable. I need to sort of pretend to be perfect. And I think loads of people will kind of recognise that reality to some extent, because, you know, we know we are all not perfect and we're sort of not in perfect organisations. Can I just say, I think Mm. there are two enemies here. One enemy is what you're describing beautifully. It's like, oh, I don't I don't want to look stupid or, Mm. you know, because that's attached to shame and (laughs) lots of very powerful emotions in us. And of course, we're going to try to avoid anything that's painful to us. So it is that part of it. But there's also another enemy. And that is that when we really, really think that we know how something works, we become utterly (laughs) stupid. Because what I see a lot of time is people that have been doing stuff for a very long time and organizations and big organizations have this in mass. Like, this is what we always done and know. Yeah. And the minute that you think that you've figured out how the world works and how everything works, what's going to happen is that you're going to start, you're going to stop learning. So that's the other enemy. And I just want to flag that both of these exist in equal measures. Mm. And one of the things that you talk about so brilliantly, and as I mentioned to you when we first connected, you have an incredible article I think I recommend pretty much every week to at least one person, if not a big group of people, which was all about this idea of learning by doing. And I find this so fascinating because I think people... This is potentially one of those areas where there's a bit of a say-do gap, as I would describe it. So everyone says we need to do loads more learning by doing. And then often when I ask for examples or like, what does that look like? Then you sort of get a bit of a pause. Uh, So I think everybody recognises like, okay, well, we do learn best when we do, when we practice. And you have this great definition where you, you describe it as learning through reflection on and while doing and, and I was, you're nodding along and reading but then I don't see this happening as much as you might imagine individually and in organizations so I, I sort of still feel like there's so much potential in learning by doing and there was a mistake that you talk about in the article where you describe that so many of us think learning by doing is sort of learning by trial and error and I was like yes that is that is what I thought learning by doing was so perhaps you could sort of almost dispel that myth for us. Like, why is it not trial and error? Because I was thinking, oh, I practice. I realise I've not done something quite right. And then I course correct and I get a bit better the next time. But I think that is a quite a limited view of learning by doing, if if I've understood it right. Yeah, this is a compound question. But, uh, but mm. I'm trying to break it down and see if I can answer it in a satisfactory way. You see, trial error is sort of a... It's a mental model that we know how something works or or, or doesn't work. So it's it's like, if I do that, then this happens. And it's incredibly problem-focused, I would say, trying around, because you're trying to figure out a problem. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because basically what it says, the world is a problem to be solved. And if Hmm. I'm going to try 10,000 different things and see if any of it sticks and works. And by the way, that's fine. But I do think that there's also another way to looking at the world, which is much more imaginative, which is sort of what if, which is much more open and that I call it appreciative inquiry. And actually, that, that's sort of a common term in, in academics, where you sort of you envision something completely different. And this sort of trial error for me sits very much in the world is a problem type mentality, <laughs> while it sort of misses the juice and the power 
in the what if, you know, what is working and how can we do more of that? I see this so much in big organizations and, you know, I'm in one of them being in a big bank where so much of our attention is just going to what is not working and we're trying and, and we think that we're being good managers and good co-workers and good leaders when we're constantly focusing what the problem is. Well, I'm trying to at least bring to my work a view that, no, no, but let's, let's for a minute, don't put the tension on what's not working. Let's put our attention on what's really working and ask ourselves, how can we do more of that? Where are teams really thriving? Where are, you know, and I'm saying this example because the sort of the trial and error goes directly to the problem. <laughs> that you think, and my, by the way, you might not have identified the right problem. <laughs> You're trying to, you might not even know what the exam question is. And, and, you know, which is also why I think questions in many ways, at least at the start of a process, is way more interesting to occupy your time with. Let's think about what the question is. And, and when you have that connection with people and communication with people, you'll find that you'll end up understanding something way much better only by asking questions. You haven't really got your head together to try to figure out the answer, but yet the subject becomes much more expand, expanded and, and, and multidimensionalized. Mm, there was something else you said, though, there in the initial question around learning by doing, is that our starting point is usually we want to learn something and we want to get into doing. And I got a huge bias for that myself because I think that there's particularly in European culture. I mean, I've been fortunate to work all over the world and seen very different cultures attack this from Latin American culture, American culture, so North American sort of US Canadian culture, but also Asian and African cultures. And in Europe, we have a huge bias for trying to analyze our way to a solution. You know, I usually say that, you know, the British are really brilliant at figuring out where the perfect place is to move the mountain. They spend <laughs> so much time analyzing with data. They spend months going, where is the perfect place to put the mountain? And once they sort of intellectually dealt with it, you go, yeah, yeah it's probably over there. All energy is gone. No mountain is going to be moved. Everyone's just going to go, well, now we've, we've got the answer. So what's the point sort of thing? The Americans, I mean, jokingly now, to stereotype <laughs> cultures, which is okay, I think, but they're sort of the opposite. They, they, they all get really excited about moving the mountain and, and they <laughs> rally the troops and the whole community comes together and the mountain gets moved many times to the wrong place. You know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but it but, gets moved. <laughs> but it gets moved. But, but what I do like about that American approach that there is so much that emerges when you actually start doing stuff mm -hmm. that you never could think about beforehand. You can really, you really don't get to the real issues and to the sort of opportunities unless you actually step into action. And I think many, many times we hold ourselves back to start doing stuff because we think we need to have the answer before we do it. And I'm saying, actually, start doing it will help us get to the answer sooner. So, but, but it only works to the third reflection <laughs> in your question that I had, which is the whole point of reflection. Because what maybe lacks a little bit <laughs> in that American example I gave, stereotypically, and, you know, we're playing around here, so don't take it too seriously, but... 
what lacks there is someone that say, okay, we've done a little bit now. Let's stop. Let's look at what we're doing. Let's get together. Let's talk about it. And are we, is this the right thing? What, what have we learned so far? What have emerged? Is there potentially another way of doing it? Have we found some new thing that we should think about? And so much in our way of working culture, you know, the traditional waterfall way, I'm, I'm sure you've spoken a lot about waterfall and agile on this podcast, but sort of the waterfall way when it's sort of you start and analyze and then you develop a plan and then comes an implementation phase. And at that point, nothing can change. You don't change your requirements. You don't change your analysis. You just like, we're now in execution mode and all we need to do is just deliver the plan, you know. And then two years later, you realize it was wrong. While in an agile way, which is why agile originally came to being in software development, was that that waterfall way didn't work. By the end of that two-year process, you delivered a software which wasn't what user wanted and the world had moved on and it wasn't competitive and, you know, whatever. So you sort of then went, actually, let's start with a really informed hypothesis with some really informed requirements, but we'll test it regularly. We'll do small MVPs. We put it in front of users and other stakeholders. We learn from it and then we do the, you know, we build the next thing. So it's a much more iterative way. And Agile in itself have this built-in, you know, retros. You get together and you go, what have we learned this week? What happened? What was good? What was bad? What was the awesome? What was the ugly? You share it openly and you talk about it and then you learn from it and then sort of you build from there. So, so this sort of bias for action only works if you've got built-in ways to reflecting. And by the way, it's not something you do yourself. <laughs> it's something you do with others because, you know, what you don't know, you don't know. And you have loads of blind spots. And, and, actually, and, and I always think that the room is smarter than any individual. So if you can orchestrate that you, and can build an environment where you collectively can be intelligent, by the way, you can collectively be stupid as well. So, you know, it has to be facilitated well. <laughs> I've seen example of both. Yeah, and what really strikes me about the approach that you just described so eloquently and usefully there is I think probably the trial and error problem approach is okay in a sort of certain world with very simple problems. But the majority of what we are all spending our time on is where we've got uncertainty and lots of unknowns. And we're either trying to spot opportunities to create completely new value or, you know, find new ways of working. You know, think we're trying to think differently. And actually, if we just sort of iterating or if we're just overly biased towards any of those approaches that you just described, mm. then we're sort of missing out on loads of learning along the way. I think you say it better than I do. So I, I, comple <laughs> I completely agree with you. <laughs> well, no, I've just I've just listened hopefully to you and then gone, <laughs> okay, so this is this is what we need to be doing. And given what you've just described, what do you think stops people from doing that? What do you think stops teams and organizations from designing a learning organization where we're that learning agility is just part of a DNA? Yeah, I think partly it's because people haven't experienced it. And when mm. you haven't had a direct experience, I mean, you don't know what you're missing out of. And yep. you also don't necessarily know what the ingredients of such a culture or way of working, whatever it is, needs to be in order for it to thrive. So I see a lot of that 
which, to be honest, comes from our school system, right? Because, you know, the, the traditional school system, because you've got an expert in the room and we learn from that person and, you know. But there's also another thing here, which is the fact that, you know, when organizations says that they are learning organizations, they usually mean that, yeah, and therefore we invest in your time so you can go on courses and, you know, <laughs> do things. Which is why in my article, I say it's actually not about learning by doing, it's about doing by learning. Because I think that any organization that is up to something exciting, whether they're a startup, whether they're scaling something, whether they're a big organization transforming what they do, basically, they're about to move from a current state into a future state. Somehow that's about innovation and doing things differently. And if you're in an organization like that, learning is the way to achieve that. And learning on the job is <laughs> about achieving <laughs> which is another thing that is not okay a lot of the time. We're hired into jobs to sort of be able to master it. And and another here, thing here as well, which, which makes me really sad, actually, and I see it very often, and I always think, what a huge sort of, it's such a miss of opportunity, is that, is that we like to think of individuals as sort of the largest component. <laughs> and what I mean with that is like we, we're trying to hire people, you know, the golf term, hole in one. You yeah. know, it's like you, you hit the ball and it goes straight into <laughs> the hole. And we sort of think that that's the way we need to hire we construct a role and then we need to hire the perfect person <laughs> for that role. And we dissect individuals as if they were supposed to be everything and be perfect for deliver this specific thing. And I don't think that the world works like that. I, I actually think that teams are way more powerful than any individual in that team. And if we think more about how do we create the right teams with the right combination of skill sets, because, you know, we're not... Jesus, like we're not superpowers of everything. <laughs> you know, we might be re excel and be really good at a few things, and then someone else is really great at something else. If we can combine it, awesome. That is what you want to get to. But like back how that relates to learning at work, I think, you know, learning is a way to achieve your future state, not something separate, not something that people do then, oh yeah, don't forget that you need to plan your four hours of learning this <laughs> month. <laughs> you know, it is a way of working and a culture where learning is your strategy to get to a future state. Because the reality is those companies that I talk about that are up to something, they haven't figured it out. They don't, you know, we're talking about the future. It's a constantly evolving, changing things. And you want to also, you're in competition. So you want to excel over your competitors. You want to get ahead of them and hopefully stay ahead of them. And how do you do that? If you're not fundamentally on a daily basis learning, it is impossible. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I also wonder if it's sometimes our emphasis and preoccupation with short-termism and you know when we feel like there's a gap that we've got or we want to create more learning in an organization or as individuals whether we're looking at this organizationally or individually we can't help but look for quick solutions you know you can't help but think and we, we spend a lot of time talking to people about let's kind of move way beyond learning equals going on a course and yeah and that comes from somebody you know I spend my some of my time doing workshops with individuals with organizations and one of the things that often people get surprised by is I'll say, well, we're going to spend lots of time doing, you know, I, to your point about my job really here is to facilitate you doing during this time, not to give you a to do list to do after this time and not for you to listen to me do a lecture for the next hour, mm. because mm. neither of those things are going to be very useful. Mm. But you can see that people are still getting used to that. And a really common question that I still get all of the time is, you know, I want to get better at X what course should I go on? Mm. And and it's so interesting that we still kind of have this quite a binary, I think, approach to learning that is still so connected to, I expect to be in a room with an expert. So letting go, I think, of some of those, um, again, it goes back to a bit of unlearning about what learning looks like. So I think that's just an interesting question, I think, for all of our listeners to really think about. It's like, well, how are you learning? And also, who are you learning with? Because you make this brilliant point about the I versus the we. And you talk about communities of learning. You, you kind of made the point today about the whole being bigger than the sum mm. of the parts. And I do think sometimes we get very obsessed with maybe we can't help but be individual and think, oh, well, I just sort of need to figure out well, what do I need to learn to get to the next, if we're thinking in a ladder-like way, step of my career versus, well, actually, if we're all learning together, there's enough space for everybody to all progress in their all in individual directions. And do you find building on this idea of like learning as a team and you you lead a team and you've led organisations and you've worked in so many different places and spaces, it's kind of fascinating to hear your experiences. What has worked really well for you? Well, I'm a big fan of what I call communities of practice. You know, people that are up to the same sort of thing and it's not an expert in the room, and they learn together. I've seen this working really well in agile organization, where apart from you being you know, part of whatever 
you know, scrum you are, what you also then do is that you orchestrate what I would call a community of practitioners. But it might be that UX people get together or whatever skills that exist in those teams, they also get together as a vertical team. And they learn together because they can share problems, they can problem solve on a daily basis. You know, they can have an ongoing dialogue about whatever is going on. And, you know, this is not just an opinion, but it is well known in the academic world, the people that really look at learning and pedagogics, etc., that communities of practitioners are way more effective than sort of the traditional expert learning model. But I do think, because we've got such a bias for this, I need to go on a course, we think that we haven't learned anything unless we've been on the course. <laughs> like, we really, we, we, we're not very good at recognizing where we learn because we don't, we don't have a meta perspective and which it comes back to reflection. And I've asked people all over the world, right, tell me about a good learning experience that you've had. And they will all say something, an experience that they've had, where they where they had that aha moment, and they figure. And it could be skiing, it could be biking, it could it could be making a wreath, it could be it could be anything. <laughs> and when I ask them, tell me about a bad learning experience, it's always about a teacher, always. It's always about the teacher or a really boring book, you know. But, <laughs> so when when you sort of start to become aware of great learning experience that you had, you kind of go, well, how can I do more of that? That said, I don't have a problem with experts. You know, one of my favorite academics, unfortunately not alive anymore, but a guy called Dag Rydkvist, Swedish guy, his whole area of research was around what makes a master a master. So he spent his whole life trying to figure out why is it that some people, by their peers, okay, so if you take all the florists in the world, there might be mm-hmm. a few of them that are just amazing or violinists or marketing people, you know, whatever, right? But by their peers, they recognize as true masters of what they do. What makes them mad? Like, how did they get there? And he was obsessed with trying to figure out the formula for this. So he went back and go like, is it their socioeconomic background? Was it, you know, did they go to more prestigious universities? Yeah. <laughs> did they spend more time with, you know, he really tried to find what are those factors. And by the end, you know, he sort of said, I think that what makes a master a master are three things, <laughs> right? Which has nothing to do with it. It's just interesting, but it's three things. It's, it's a, a, they believe that what they're doing is really, really, really important. No matter whether they're like a florist, a violinist, in marketing, in finance, it doesn't matter. They just think that this is really important. What I'm doing is really important to the world or really important to me or to the, whatever mm-hmm. it is. They, they, they find huge importance in the work. The second thing is that they do it for the sake of doing it. So they just love doing it. And I think that, you know, if you think of an activity that we do in our lives that serves no other purpose than we just love doing it. I mean, as a kid, it's playing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you playing? You go... Because you're playing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's fun. Because it's yeah. great, you know. And so there's an element of that, whether you're, you know, we have currently done a project with Marcus Rashford and it's so obvious that he just loves it. <laughs> he's like, you know, <laughs> he's still a kid with a football. I mean, I know nothing about football and completely uninterested, but I can feel a person's <laughs> energy. 
And when yeah. he's there with the ball, it, he's, they're driven by joy, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then the final bit, and here's where it gets really interesting. They don't let anyone tell them how to do it. <laughs> so what I'm saying, they might, they might have gone and learned the rules somewhere. They might know what the, this is the standard way of doing it, and here's how you should do it. But all these masters have at some point transcended that. You know, to, to not buy the status quo. And I think what I guess we that's learn... creating the future state, isn't it? That you <laughs> yes, that you were yes. talking about. They've they've basically done that. They've yeah. gone through that process that you described. Learn the rules, but at some point go beyond the rules. Mm. There are so many enemies here though, Sarah, to mm. that type of mission. That you know, mm. the people that want to do things differently. I mean, most established big organization they love to retain the status quo. They want to keep their existing revenue streams or, or whatever it is. <laughs> they, uh, they don't want to cannibalize on this. They don't want to come up that potentially could replace themselves because, you know, you, you know what you know and you, it's a safe, comfortable space. You know, another enemy to that is just, it's just risk in general. You know, one of the things that I observe as I go on my career, and I, you know, I'm turning 50 in February. So, and I've been on this for 30 years, you know. <laughs> so one of the things that I've seen, as well as I've progressed in my career, is, you know, we like to think that we have leaders of these large organizations that, you know, are visionary and innovative and driving the future <laughs> forward. But the reality is that most organizations promote people because they didn't fuck up. Mm-hmm. And as you excel, you get, you know, you get more status, you get a nicer title, you get more money, you get more people working for you. You know, you climb that ladder, the more you as an individual have got to lose. So you become more, I would say, risk averse, mm. right? Now, with experience also comes something else, which is the ability to take more calculated risk, to be more informed, to be more sort of, you can take risk, but you, you also know how to mitigate them. You're not going to throw yourself out of an airplane, right? You, <laughs> you go and you do some training and you do some tandem jumps and, you know, you get, you get experienced. And then at some point when you feel that you're equipped yourself with the right skills and knowledge and confidence, whatever it is, you're going to do that first jump. And one of the misconceptions, actually, that people have about entrepreneurs is that they are big risk takers, I don't think that they are. I think they're very good risk managers. I just think that they're very good at starting something small, trying something out. You know, if it works, they scale it, they adjust it. They, they're very agile. You know, while a big organization have no problem with going, well, this is a good idea. Let's invest, you know, you know 20 million pounds, you know, and then they do, <laughs> they do what they always done. <laughs> yeah. They'll fuck it up. But, um, you know, they're good, actually, a lot of the entrepreneurs are good risk managers, but perhaps with a higher risk profile. They are happy to set out to do something without having everything figured out, right? While most people and businesses, they want to know exactly how to get there. If you want that level of certainty, you will only be able to do what you've always done and know. It's never going to happen, is what I'm saying. Well, it feels both limiting for everybody, but also it feels to me like you reduce your career resilience because you Mm. are betting on a certain world where we know that on average people are going to have 
four to six different types of career during their working life. We, we know that we're all unlearning, relearning, there's upskilling and reskilling happening all of the time. So if you are fixed to a very specific future, you know, and you sort of see that there's kind of one way, then I get worried about those people because I then think that when things change around them, which they inevitably will, you're then left in a position where perhaps your, you know, your identity is so wrapped up in where you are in that future and kind of what you know, that you've not explored possibilities, you've not thought about different opportunities, you've not been continually learning and been really open. And yeah, I, I really remember having a moment in my career where, you know, things are flying, you're like, everything was going like on paper, like perfect on paper is how I describe that moment. And in that perfect on paper moment, I think something really useful happened to me in my career, which is that something changed in the organisation that I was in, that basically meant my job disappeared. And so you were like, I, I couldn't have been more employable in that moment. You know, I was at you know, everything. I was flying. I was doing really well, performing really well. I'd won awards left, right and centre. And suddenly you have that moment of realisation of going, oh, well, no future is fixed. Things can all, are always going to change around you. And actually, that's why you've got to be open to different possibilities. And it's also why your identity needs to not be too wrapped up in the work that you do or any titles mm. that you've got. I actually always though I didn't love it on that day, I have to say, um, I do always feel really grateful that that sort of happened. And it definitely happened to me. You know, that's not something I would have chosen to have happened. But I'm sort of grateful that did happen. And it happened earlier enough in my career that it then sort of helped me to embrace more openness, more learning, sort of let go of this idea of achievement equals, I don't know, how many certificates you've got or, you know, how many courses you've been on or all those kind of things. We all have these sort of segue moments, I think, sometimes in our squiggly careers. That's the way I sometimes describe them, where the world opens up a bit more. And we assume that that's always from, you know, a really brilliant thing happening. But I think sometimes it can be from a constraint or from a challenge. And that can Mm. actually open up, it can open up opportunities. But also, I mean, if you look at, you know, Fortune 500, that listing has been around for quite some time. And 50 years ago, the average lifestyle to be on the Fortune 500 list was, you know, close to 70 years. And today it's it's less, I, mean, I think we're, we're nearing 10 years. Wow. So that just shows that the soul, there's so much change happening and we're in this, you know, still in this paradigm shift driven by digitization. And you can get good at something and do something, but it's not going to last for a lifetime. But the other thing that I think what you're saying and I've learned this the hard way in my career. It's like, just you are not your job. <laughs> just, you, you know, if you put your self-worth and also your identity onto it, you're going to start going to work to keep your job. And immediately you get worse at what you do. So I, I think you need to go to work to do your work, <laughs> not, not, not <laughs> go to work to keep your work. I was very fortunate early in my career, actually, to come across something similar to you. I had a coach at the time and she said, David, you take this way too personal, right? And she steered me into really doing systems analysis, understanding that you are also part of a culture, you're part of a system, and you're going to be heavily, heavily influenced by that. You know, I now refer to that as the fishbowl. And that you have to realize that it's not you. You are much more than the role that you have taken on in that particular organization, that particular time. You're much more than that. 
Um, which is also why one of my pet allergies, actually, when it comes to develop self-development and this sort of the stuff that we in business sometimes get occupied with, which is all the typology work that's being done, you know, personal test. What type of person are you? Mm, what type yeah, of leader are yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people do this test and they go, well, I'm this type of leader and I'm this type of, and you're going, no, no, first and foremost, many of them, and I would say, 99% of them have no scientific validity I whatsoever. I know, I know. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, you, we, you and I have the same. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Even <laughs> when people talk about them, I'm like, just no. be really careful. Yeah, I know it's... why people love them, but <laughs> yeah. I just, I get so worried about people then uh, attaching themselves oh my, to yes, them. Exactly. And just going, oh, well, that's it. That, like, yeah, that they, they can give you insights. <laughs> they can give you insights. Yeah, they, they can. can. Broad, I think they, they can. They can broaden your self-awareness in certain respects. Definitely. If, if they're used to facilitate that self-awareness. But you should always have a devil on your shoulder saying, that type is not you because types doesn't exist. And, yeah. and this was proven already scientifically, you know, back in the 50s, amazing, amazing organizational psychologist called Will Schutz, who, who then went on and, and constructed Fire B, which is a relational model. It's not a typology. And he looked, he, he, he took all the research, at the, I mean, he took all this typology, you know, Belbin, I think yeah, the, Swiss, of you know, the Swiss, you know, yeah. it's a sort of classical one to say, are you a chairperson? Are you an integrator? Yeah. Are you a relational mm. person? You know. I think Belbin was my first ever one that I was made to do. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. So he was doing research for the Marine and they have this huge airplane carrier. Are they called carriers? Yeah. You know, with which airplane land on. It's the most expensive piece of equipment that they have, basically. So they were really keen to get a really good team together to run them. OK, so... You know, they hired a bunch of East Coast academics <laughs> in this field and they went in and they really, really tried and tested and observed different things. So they did the whole typology thing where, you know, you put everyone through psychometric tests and you go, here's a chairperson, here's a this and here's a that and here. And they put together teams based on that. Were they higher performing than the ones that currently were higher performing? No. They weren't. They weren't. <laughs> then they went away and tried other models as well, by the way. They tried the expert model, which is I, I'm also a bit skeptical of that approach. Like, yes, let's take the best captain, the best navigator, you know, the best of, you know, will they be high performing? And the answer was no, because it wasn't about the individual. It was about the team. And that's why he eventually developed FIRO, because it was like, well, it's actually about the people and the relationships that they have and their skills. Skills are not, not important, but it's not as important as we think it is. And which is why you can see this in sports, right? They don't necessarily have to have the best players. You can yeah, have a yeah. team excelling dramatically because they're a team and they know each other's weaknesses and strengths and they communicate well and they like each other. And, you know, and whatever it is, that is a much more important factor in performance than, 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 well, typology, we can just go, no, <laughs> it's, it, it has no relevancy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like you were putting together a team using horoscope, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I like that. It's like putting together a team with a horoscope. That's, that's yeah, good. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so just as we're coming to the end of the conversation, two last questions for you. We always end our interviews with um, a bit of career advice for our listeners from you. So we'll come to that in a second. But I would just like to do one more question on learning. So people will have listened to our conversation today and our Squiggly Career podcast listeners 
love to learn. They're choosing to spend their listening time with us, listening to a podcast about development and they want to learn. And perhaps they're just thinking, how do I get started? I recognise that I'm not doing my learning. Perhaps I'm a bit in that trial and error space. They recognise some of those enemies that you've described so well today. And they think, what's one practical thing that I could do to start learning by doing, make that a habit, make that part of my kind of day to day? Where would you suggest people get started? Well, if you're theoretical and you're like, you know, go and read Carol Dweck and embrace the growth mindset because that will propel you. If you realize that you're not perfect and it's okay not to know and whatever life throws at me, I can actually learn it. It might take some time and that's okay, but I can, whatever I put my mind on, I can do. That is a much more helpful set of beliefs than this whole thing. Oh my God, you know, you know, I can't do it. If I don't get it immediately, I'm never going to get it. And, you know, oh, I fucked this up. I'm not going to tell anyone that because that's really shit. Like, so, so I think that if you if you sort of want a yep. little bit of a framework to put some reference point in your own mind and mindset, then Carol Dweck is it. And by the way, you can watch YouTube. It, it will take yes. half an hour. Watch your TED Talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, watch your TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> if you're more practical, I would be probably in that camp. I would do a very simple weekly journal, not daily journal, but I would go, we always end work a little bit earlier on a Friday take 10 minutes and do a very simple exercise, which is what happened. And you you take the important things that happened that week and it could be anything, right? It can be something that you feel really emotionally charged with. It could be, I had a row with my boss or, I mean, or, or it could be something that you did that you thought were amazing. It could be anything, right? So what happened? How did it make you feel? It's the second question. It sounds so simple but your behavior is going to change because you're going to start reflecting on what have happened and you're going to almost materialize the things that you weren't aware of. You're going to put shape to it and you're going to integrate it into you as an individual much more efficiently. And you will see that doing this practice will very, very quickly accelerate your own learning even how you look at a bad situation, you're going to go, oh, this is going to be juicy to think about on Friday. <laughs> like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to overthink it now, but I'm going to spend some time on Friday and really think and, and go, what can I learn from this? Yeah, there's some great, we would co- describe those as coach yourself questions. Yeah. Um, so we'll make sure that we also write those. We do a summary of the podcast in one page, which we call a pod sheet. Okay, and for cool. every, everybody listening, we'll make sure that those coach yourself questions are in this week's pod sheet for you. And so last question for you, David, we ask all of our experts this. I'm not sure how I feel about calling them as the expert now, given what we've talked about today, but um, let's stick with it for now. Let's stick with the format for now. Um, Maybe master, ask the master. That's very hard to say, though. Just for one bit of squiggly careers advice that you'd like to share with our listeners, it can be your own words of wisdom, something that someone else has told you that's really stuck with you, but something that you'd like to leave us all with today. For me, it's two things. The first thing is, like, dream bigger. I, at least for myself, speaking from the eye, I probably put too much constraints on myself. Oh, I want to go a course. Where should I go? I wouldn't even cross my mind that I could go to Harvard, you know, because it wasn't even in my universe. I never thought that would be doable. So I put this all constraints on myself. So I'm saying allow yourself to 
yes, you can go to Harvard. Yes, you can work at Apple or whatever company you look up to. Yes, you can do that. So don't don't put these constraints on on yourself, because actually it's fun to dream as well. It's sort of fun. Imagine what my life would look like. <laughs> yeah, fun just for, for for doing that. But the second thing I would say, which is sort of contrary to that, is like don't over career yourself. Um, I, I'm actually a really bad person to give career advice because I never really, I mean, I never sat down and had a plan and a 10-year plan and maybe this this is my own bias, but I have always done what I felt was important, what I love, where I felt joy, what I thought was interesting. And I've tried to go to work to do to do my job, not to keep my job and not sort of play strategically on a career ladder but sort of go, I want to do great things with great people and I want to help orchestrate and direct that. I think that for me, that's been a good thing because it also allowed me to end things when I should end it, you know, because a lot of people stay on because they think they're good for their career. And meanwhile, they kill their spirit and their soul and their dreams of what they could be. I see it in other people's eyes and it makes me really sad. <laughs> so, you know, don't don't overdo it. And when you're in the wrong fishbowl, you need to recognize you're in the wrong fishbowl and you need to jump to one where, you know, which is less toxic and more fresh water, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Better nutrition. <laughs> yeah. I think that's very good advice given we are not our jobs, but we do spend a lot of our week working. So we want to spend that time, I think, having fun and learning and and with great people. David, thank you so much for our conversation today on the Squiggly Careers podcast. It's been so nice to actually, I don't think I've ever said this before, but to put a face to an article that I have read so many times <laughs> and recommended to people. And I always knew we were sort of connected through a couple of other people Um so you've been on my list for a long time, so I'm not sure how you feel about that. So I'm so glad, personally, um, I'm thrilled that we had this conversation and I've learnt loads and scribbled loads down, so thank you. Um, and I know that our listeners will find it really helpful too. Thank you so much. It's been my privilege and pleasure. Thank you. So thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you found that helpful. Of course, the link to the article that I mentioned at the start of the episode is in the show notes. If you're stuck finding it, please get in touch. You can email us. We're Helen and Sarah at squigglycareers.com or on LinkedIn on Amazing If or just connect with me directly. I sort of feel it's an article I'd love everybody to spend some time learning from and, and reading and recommending exactly as I've done. If you've got any questions, if there's any experts that you'd like to hear from or topics you'd really like us to cover, again, please do let us know. We always really want to know what's on your minds at the moment so we can be relevant and useful for everyone. But that's it for this week. We hope that's been helpful. I'm back with you again soon. Bye for now. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.